You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. And thanks for helping us spread the word. Coming up, we've got some great new conversations with writers, publishers, and more. Also, if there is a store out there that you'd like to hear from or have featured, please reach out. Our Instagram handle is at bookstoriespodcast. I'd love to hear from you. This is a conversation I had back in 2018 with writer and bookseller Benjamin Rybeck of Brazos Bookstore in Houston, Texas. Sad to say I've never been to Houston, but after this discussion, when I visit, Brazos will be one of my first stops. We had a really great chat, so here it is, my conversation with Ben. Um, thank you for being a part of this. I'm excited to talk to you. No, thanks. Thanks for asking. It's, um, I'm excited too. Um, so right off the bat, is it, is it Brazos or Brazos? <laughs> it's, Bra- it's Brazos. Okay. Um, though I, though I feel like I say it slightly different every time that I say it. Okay. Um, what's the Brazos origin story up until the point where it became owned by this collective, uh, that I'm going to ask you about in a little, in a little, a little bit later. Ah. Okay, so it was founded in 1974 by a guy named Carl Killian, who was a protege of Dominique de Manil's. People in Houston are very passionate about the de Manil's. There was just a book that was published called Double Vision about them. And the story of the de Manil's basically is that they were a, a very wealthy family in Houston that was very into philanthropic work. And the story apparently goes that Carl wanted to start a bookstore and he'd been living in New York for a little while. And he was working at a store there and he told Dominique de Manil, I, I, you know, I want to open a bookstore and I want to do it here in New York. And she said, why would you, they don't need another bookstore, come home and open one here. So he came back to Houston and opened the store in 1974. And it was sort of a uh, it was sort of a big moment for for what was at that time a kind of burgeoning literary scene in Houston. Out of Brazos um, and out of Carl Carl's vision, in many ways, um, sprung up a lot of other organizations in Houston. Really, kind of gave foundation to the literary life. The University of Houston Creative Writing Program sprung up, sort of adjacent to Carl and Brazos. Donald Bartholomew moved back to Houston to teach and was involved with the store for a while. And so it's this kind of rich, uh, rich literary legacy that, that Brazos has in the city of Houston. And a lot of it, and it's due in, in large part to Carl's efforts over the years. Where does the name come from? Uh, well, the, it, it, Brazos is a river in texas okay um why he chose that name i'm not i'm not precisely sure but you know i kind of like i kind of like the name i feel like there's there's two approaches to naming stores and one is kind of like a uh, a, a book pun and right. the other one is to find some kind of a very specific regional word that almost comes to stand in like or, or this this the store becomes the meaning of the word Brazos to a lot of people who aren't in Texas. Um, and I kind of like that. It's an odd sounding word and it's a distinctive sounding word. That's interesting. And, it has a, it yeah, has a it, certain heft as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think so. I, I was, I was kind of, 
I was kind of captivated by the word before I even like had been to the store when I just moved to Houston and was Googling, you know, bookstore in Houston. I saw Brazos and I was like, what is, what does that mean? And it's a Spanish word, but it, you know, it refers to a river here in Texas. So that's a boring answer. That it's a river. (laughs) We kind of, uh, we kind of already know that you're you originate from Portland. Uh, mm-hmm. wh- what's your background? Just kind of draw a line from where you started to where you are now. Um, it's sort of the boring liberal arts story in a lot of ways. I was an English major in undergrad. I moved to Tucson, Arizona, to get a graduate uh, degree in creative writing, which is, of course, an extremely useful degree to get. Um, and just opens the doors for all kinds of jobs, you know. Um, but uh, I, I, I kid, of course. I, I wouldn't have traded that time for anything. But you know, you kind of, you kind of come out of the graduate program and you look around and you go, okay, well, assuming that I'm not going to get a tenure track teaching job right out of the gate, you do a couple different things, right? You might adjunct for a little while, which I did, or get into some form of freelance book journalism, which I also did for a little while, writing for a bunch of different places. And then when I moved to Houston, I found myself unemployed and mostly picking up work doing book reviews and features and stuff. Why Houston? And why Houston? Um, so just, just, just personal reasons. Okay. Um, yeah, partner at the time and, um, got a job in Houston. So I figured I didn't know anything about Houston. So I figured, Oh, why not? And, um, and went to the store one day, and they were looking to hire someone, and they hired me part-time to do some event work, and I just kind of never left. I find the work in the store, I, I never I never had imagined that I would go work in a bookstore. That was never quite, let alone run one. That was never quite my sense of what, uh, what I would do coming out of an MFA program. But I found pretty quickly that the store and the work of the store in its, in all of its kind of facets combined a lot of what I like about sort of the, the literary life, not, not to sound too grandiose with a term like that, but sure. But you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a, you're a writer and, and you had a debut novel uh, that came out a few years ago, correct? Yes, I did. Yeah. Can you uh, can you walk listeners through that what that process is like from from kernel of an idea to publication? Oh boy! Um, I know that I know that's I know that's a very grandiose <laughs> question. I'm asking you to encapsulate a lot, but uh, just just sort of uh, maybe if you can give your bird's eye view from an experience that you went through that a lot of people want to go through but sometimes don't have the courage to do or don't have the discipline to follow through on. Um, I wonder all the time how one writes a book. Um, having written one and published one, I still wonder how one writes a book. Um, and it seems as though it's the steady accumulation of small gestures of work more than it is any kind of a a, a grandiose thing. I I think if you, if you go into the process and you say, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be this big thing and all of that. I personally get overwhelmed fairly quickly. And the only way that I really know how to do that, and the only way I know how to do the work of the store too, which in a weird way doesn't feel that different from writing to me, is just kind of doing doing small things over and over again. And having the faith 
that those small things will eventually accrue into something larger and something that feels whole and complete. Mm. Well said. I, I don't know if that, I don't know if that exactly answers your your question. But no, I think it does. I just I'm just trying to sure. get your just trying to get your perspective. You're one of the the proud the few that actually follow through on something that a lot of people talk about doing and think about doing and dream about doing. And so it's always just nice. It's always just nice to hear someone who's been through the journey. Well, it's interesting too. It's a story because our kids specialist is a, is a YA novelist herself named Joy Preble. And our floor manager is named Mark Haber, and he has his first novel uh, being published by Coffee House sometime uh, next year, still pending pending the date. So, so it's interesting that at Brazos, there's actually there's more people who have written, and that doesn't count all of the other people who are currently at work on things too. You know, right? It's an, it's 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 interesting people people working in bookstores almost the way that people work in record stores, you know, probably want to be writers the way that record store clerks probably, probably want to be musicians and have bands too. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. It's finding, it's finding a way to, you know, let the, let, let the two, let the day job feed into the other things um, and not have the day job take away from the other things. Sure. That's a great analogy. Um, Brazos is owned by a large group of locals. I think I read that it's, tw- yes. it's 20 plus. How did that come about and how has it been being run by committee, I guess? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. The, you know, it showed, what am I trying to say? There's always this, there's always this questioning of the place of the independent bookstore, you know, like, how does it relate to a community? Does a community support it? All of this stuff. Like you kind of, you kind of ask yourself all the time, are we of our community? And the good thing about Brazos is that there's already been a decision, right? There was already a line in the sand when Carl was going to sell the store and 20 or so people came together to buy it and said, we as a community are choosing that we need to keep this store here. And that's a great kind of feeling, I think, because Mm -hmm. you know that, there's already been a vote and the vote happens, you know, years before I ever came on the scene at Brazos. And I still feel that kind of warmth and support of not only that group of people, but also the way that it radiates out to their friends and just sort of Houston as a city in terms of the operations of the store, you know, it's, it's a nice situation because they're all very, very smart people and very generous people. And they are always there to, for advice and to help in some ways, but you know, we, but we get to kind of, we get to run the store how we get to run the store, how we want to in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think that they understand that the best thing to do to keep a store healthy is to feed the authority to the people who are there every single day and are passionate about it. As far as you know, is Brazos unique in this ownership structure in terms of the, in terms of the number of stakeholders? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's fairly unique. People seem to kind of get wide-eyed when I tell them that we have 27 owners or, or thereabouts. So, so I think people are surprised to hear that and wonder how it works exactly. I mean, certainly there's, there's many bookstores where there are silent, silent partners in one way or another, um, groups of owners, boards that oversee it and so on and so forth. Um, whether others have the same number that we have, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I do find in talking to other bookstores that, that, that 
the, the kind of older model of having one owner who also works in the store every day and operates the store is still kind of the norm, you know? So it's, so I think it is unique to have a larger group of owners who do not operate the store, you know? Mm -hmm. Talk a little about the Houston book scene, the section of town you're in, what it's like and, and what, Mm -hmm. what are people into right now? Well, um, Houston is, Houston is an extremely international city. You know, all of, you know, the, 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 uh, the energy sector of the country is based in Houston, of course, and it attracts people, um, the, the, you know, the, the job market attracts people from all over. They come in and they're interested in books. They, um, and they've come from all different countries. So Houston is a bit of an, is a bit of a, is a place where international literature plays very well and it's been nice to see kind of the city grow in that way as also there is kind of a wider breadth of literature and translation that's now available Mm -hmm. and i think that those two things complement each other very well i mean some of our best-selling books are you know novels translated from you know translated into english by Hungarian authors or, you know, Mexican authors or, or, uh, you know, Bolivian authors or, or, or whatever the case may be, you know, which is interesting in that I think people don't often think about bookstores being able to sustain themselves selling small press literature and translation. And certainly we sell more than that. We're not a boutique store, but that oftentimes is what customers are coming in for. Yeah. How's business going? It's going very well overall. I, you know, I feel like we grow year year and we want to keep pushing ourselves into positions where we're trying new things and and uh taking chances and doing more events and getting more out to the community and really kind of increasing our footprint and doing that bit by bit is uh is you know is showing huge positive impact for the store i think is there a nagging pain point that you're trying to solve or that you'd like to fix is there a nagging pain point yeah um huh i think that I think that um, one is always trying to remind people of the the role of the independent bookstore yeah. in a community and in a city, and trying to keep it vital, and making sure that the you know the store doesn't start to feel the store doesn't start to feel uh, stagnant, right? Right. But the most important thing for me most days is that we keep trying new things, and that can be that can be as as big a thing as launching a series of new initiatives and new programming, new partnerships in the city. And, and it can be as small a thing as just changing the locations of displays every week and merchandising. making sure everything merchandising. Yeah. Making sure that everything is, everything is fresh. Uh, a, a, a bookseller friend of mine told me once that the thing that they always want someone to come into the store to say is, uh, this book was over here the other day. I, I saw it when I was in on Tuesday. Yeah, I've heard. Over here, where, where, where is it? Where is it gone to now? And then that draws them into the store, and they see new things, and they have to go to a new place. And you always keep it fresh and exciting. Yeah, and I've that's heard, one of the big. That's one of the big things I'm always trying to do there. I think I've heard that similar uh, sentiment as well. When when you keep it, when you keep it fluid and keep it changing, people come in, and yeah. it's a it's a treasure chest every time. Um, yeah, and that's and that's not exactly a pain point, you know. I, right, I think no. that you're always trying to figure out a way to make the business viable as a career for people. 
um, that's one of the that's one of the things that I'm always thinking about because sometimes, I mean, nobody nobody gets into bookstores to get rich, right? Right. We all kind of we all kind of know that, and you want to find ways to establish the bookstore for your employees because ultimately it all comes down to your employees and your staff because they're the people there. They're the reason that people are coming into the store. That's the reason that they're not getting their books on Amazon. They're coming in because they want to see and talk to smart people about books. And therefore, one of the things that is always difficult is to figure out ways to make the job viable, not as a summer job or not as a part-time job, but to, um, but to make people feel like it's vocational in a way. Like you, you, you know, this is a, it's a career. It's not just a job and you live essentially a life of books. And so to just give you a very practical pain point, perhaps, um, you know, you're, you're always, you're always looking for ways, um, to create an economic viability for people to actually take that on realistically as a vocation and as a career choice. And, you know, books are not the books are not the most profitable business to be in. We could all be making more money somewhere else, but to find ways so that people can dedicate their lives to bookstores and still, still have a comfortable living is always a concern of mine. Yeah. And one of the reasons I asked that question, um, about pain points is that, uh, listener feedback, there's a contingent of listeners that are in, in the book industry or, and, and even other bookstores that are just trying to learn. Um, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a form, the question is kind of like a form of therapeutic, uh, collective problem, <laughs> problem solving, right, right. you know, well, what, do other, what do other people say? Well, I mean, again, it, it varies across the board. Some are, some stores yeah. are on autopilot, you know, some stores have point of sale problems. Some stores have, you know, they're, they're looking for innovative ways to merchandise as much as you can be innovative, you know, within the four corners of a store. So mm-hmm. just little things like that. Um, and it's nice to hear, it's nice to hear the, the gamut, you know, there um, pro- you know, there's, there are problems every single day. There are small problems every single day. Um, and you find creative solutions to them. You work with your staff, you trust your staff that everybody's on the same page and everybody's moving in the same direction. And I'm grateful for my staff because I love them. And I think that's absolutely the case, you know, and there are of course, always these small issues that come up around POS systems or around, um, around particular orders or, you know, damaged books, damaged books is a pain point for me too. I don't know why, so many books arrive damaged so often. So there's always problems. Um, you, you, you trust that there's solutions though, right? Yeah. Because everyone, every, you know, every, everyone, uh, so I'm, I, I'm on board with this. I'm on board with the therapeutic notion of a, <laughs> of a question like that. That's one of the reasons that I love going to winter Institute or, uh, or even BEA to a lesser extent where you really are focused on conversations with other booksellers that happen yes in like panels and education sessions but then just like going out to the bar afterward with like you know a a bookseller from dc and then a bookseller from seattle and a bookseller from you know montana and sitting around and having a little bit too much to drink and griping about all the problems i mean that's that's where i feel like this industry really comes together and we really are all working together to solve common problems and we all have the same problems ultimately it seems like definitely what are what are some things that you do um, to drive traffic to the store, build community, create demand? Um, I, I mean, the events program is really kind of the biggest thing, I okay. think, in a, lot, in a lot of ways. Um, Houston's not a walking city, <laughs> and we are not really in a location that has a ton of natural foot traffic. 
coming by. So how do you overcome um, that? With the events, with the okay. with the programming, you always give someone a reason to come into the store. So we do events all different times of the day, all different kinds of events. Whether it's you know whether it's uh you know story story times for families, book clubs in the afternoon or in the evening. We've lately started and have we've lately started doing and having great success with um, journaling workshops, kind of sidelines oriented events that have been really really wonderful. Mm. And then, of course, we, you know, we have a pretty active schedule of visiting authors, too. So to always have something going on in the store keeps it in people's mind and keeps it fresh in the community. I mean, just, you know, last night, summer gets a little deader in Houston just because it's hot and people want to get the hell out of town. Yeah. But, you know, so and and there's not as many big events that happen in the summer in Houston. But, you know, two weeks ago, we had David Sedaris in the store. Last night we had Terrence Hayes in the store, both just packed houses Mm -hmm, for them. mm -hmm. And those, and we, and you know, and lots of other kind of smaller ones happened too between those two and before and et cetera, and will continue to happen. But, um, but that generates a lot of interest in the store within the community. They go, Oh, David Sedaris is going to be in a room that I can go to and go talk to him, you know? And people hear about us that way sometimes, and then they come back if they have a good time. So that's what we want. What are your thoughts on broadcasting um, events and, and leveraging media, leveraging technology to to build your store brand and 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 drive traffic? Um, well, we have an active marketing arm of the store. Our social media is pretty active. We have fun with it. Um, we have a website that is more than just a kind of online e-commerce portal. We do a lot of original content on the website, interviews with authors and staff chats and stuff like that. Um, we, you know, we work very closely with all of the book media in Houston. I don't, I don't think a ton of, I don't think a lot of bookstores do that in their cities. Really, kind of have those close media contacts, but we. You know, we work to make sure that you know if uh, if Terrence Hayes is coming in, we you know we we got we've got interviews with him going out in the media to raise awareness not only about the book and about the event, but also about the store. So we work all of those angles. Um, we don't really broadcast our events. Um, there's something that I find suspicious about that, just personally, because I want people to come to the store, and I I I I, I feel as though in some ways. I'm philosophically uh, oriented against the notion that everything uh, that exists in the real world also exists in a digital space. I want, uh, I, I, I see nothing wrong with, uh, you know, Terrence Hayes gave an incredible, incredible reading last night, an incredible conversation with the audience afterward. One of the best events I've seen in the four years that I've been at the store. Isn't it kind of nice to think that that only existed there for the yeah. hundred people who came? and doesn't exist elsewhere you know like i kind i kind of like that um i kind of like that specialization of the experience exclusivity or exclusivity is a better word for it yes yeah that feels that feels special and, and nice to me and, sure and it's yeah, it's something so. that's special for the audience and the and the, and the mm-hmm. small crowd as well just like yeah. seeing just like seeing a band in an intimate venue exactly exactly I, I i like that very much you know we do all of the we do we do a lot of, of, I mean, you know, the trend in the industry is toward book, book ticket bundle offsite events for some of these bigger authors. And we do a ton of that too, but you know, David Sedaris, we could have, we could have had 800 people for him in an offsite venue. Everyone would have paid their 30 bucks 
to come and hear him speak, and then they would have left, and they would not have necessarily made a connection between that event and Brazos Bookstore. No matter how many signs we put up, no matter what kind of introduction we do, they're there for David Sedaris, not for the bookstore, necessarily. But for this tour, he only wanted to do bookstore events. He only wanted to do in-store events, no auditorium events. So it was really special to have 400 people at the store who were all there for free to see David Sedaris. And that's not just like, we paid our money, we're going to come see him, and then we're going to go home. That's like, oh, I'm here seeing David Sedaris in this kind of rarefied space of this kind of cool event that's happening in this store that I want to come back to again, you know? Do you have any point of view or thought on as to why someone as big as him would, would choose to make that decision and go smaller venue for free as opposed to? I don't, I don't want to speculate as to who made that decision exactly. Um, or, or, or why, but I, you know, but I'll, 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 I'll tell you that, I mean, David Sedaris, I don't, and any bookstore that has ever done an event with him that I've spoken to has said that he is just the nicest guy in the world. And, um, that was certainly my experience of him as well. I mean, he wanted to meet and talk to every single person who was there and talk to them at length and ask them questions and make every single person feel special. And it didn't feel like it was a, it didn't feel like it was a marketing ploy or anything like that. It just felt like it was what he wanted to do because he loved his fans. So I think that that kind of experience is different if you're in an auditorium and then you're sitting at a table out in a lobby afterward, you know, and you're signing books for people. It's di- that's a different experience from just being in a smaller, intimate space and getting to talk to everyone. And everyone just kind of feels a little bit more relaxed because, because everybody's there for, everybody's basically there for free. Right. And everybody's having a good time. And, it, and I think it's just a more conducive atmosphere to have those kinds of conversations. That would be my best guess. I, I mean, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't really know ultimately, but no, I, it's certainly, I, I can't imagine that kind of experience being, and it's not all, it's not necessarily the same when we do it in an offsite venue. It feels a little bit more formal, but in the store where, you know, there's a little bit more organic life happening around you. There's just shoppers, there's the cash register going, there's a phone ringing quietly and there's a great reading happening, and it just feels like there's a little bit more energy in that space sometimes than if you go to an auditorium and do an event there. Sure. Um, lots of stores that I've talked to and that I read about, they're, they, they've had some success. Business is, is going well for the most part. They decide to open second locations and third locations. Uh-huh. Is expansion on your radar? <laughs> um, no comment on that at the moment. Okay, fair yes. enough. Yes, it's, yes it's, it, it, I, would, I would be very... Having said no comment, I will now comment. Um, <laughs> I would be very interested in, at some point, finding finding new ways for Brazos to reach uh, new areas of the of the community. Houston's a big city, and I and I and I think that there's I think that there would be room to grow, but there are no present plans to do that at the moment. Okay, and I, and I'm not so. trying to get you to breach any uh, NDAs or anything. Just a general, just a general <laughs> sort of lay of the land question, like uh, how good is business right. type situation. Um, what advice do you have for people that want to open a bookstore today? Um, get ready to get ready to clear your entire schedule from waking to sleeping. It takes a lot of work. I think that there's this funny image that people have in their head of what it is to work in a bookstore. 
of, you know, and I, I hear this sometimes from people when they say, oh, it must be so relaxing to work in a bookstore. I would love to do that. I'd love to just be able to sit around and read all day. And, uh, and, and, and gee, sometimes I hear that after I've, you know, been working two straight weeks of, you know, open to, open to close and kind of feeling bleary eyed and gritting my teeth a bit, you know? So I think that it needs to be, to go back to what I was saying earlier about it being a career and being a vocation that you have, you need to treat it like that and respect that great amount of work that's going to go into doing it and not think of it as a hobby. How do you feel about Amazon? Who? Amazon. Who are they? I don't, I've never heard of them. <laughs> do they, do they, do they factor <laughs> in, do they factor into what you do at all on a day-to-day basis? No, you know, they, I, I, I go back and forth on this because I don't even, I, I don't even think they're in the same, they're not even in the same business. You know, I, I, I don't even think we're in the same business as Amazon. We provide, we provide an experience that's wholly different from what Amazon does. And, and I do not see a substantial impact that Amazon has upon our, upon our store. Now, I know that, there, that that is not the case for every store. Um, and I certainly do not approve of Amazon's business practices on the whole. I, I think that Amazon is a pretty good place to quickly, you know, order a, order a pair of socks or get a blender. But I don't think they're a bookstore. You, know? um, you said an interesting thing. Experience uh, is it? Is it fair to say that you're in the experience business as much as you are in the book selling business? That you're in the experience business as much as you are in the book selling business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're putting on. A, people are coming in for a show. I mean, even when there's not like an event going on, people are still coming in for a show in some way. They're coming in to see the space. They're coming in to browse it. They're coming in to talk to you. They're coming in, they're coming in to, to leave the house and to go somewhere and to be around other people. And I think that that is the key to keeping a bookstore going is recognizing that you are, you are a retail space. Yes, of course you are because you've got to sell the books to keep the lights on, but you're also something larger than a retail space and you're a community space. If you don't, if you don't provide that experience to people, why wouldn't they go and just order their book at a click on Amazon? You know, like why do they choose to come to a bookstore instead of doing something that's more convenient? I think it's because people need to get out of the house. People need to go and be around other people. I really, I really believe in that notion of the third place, you know, and that's what you provide by creating an experience for people every single time that they come in, in ways large and small. Well said. I'm going to finish up with a lightning round. I'm going to ask you a handful of questions. They can be yes or no answers, or or you can deep dive if you'd like to. Um, What's been selling really well lately? What's been selling really well lately? Um, Well, uh, Calypso, the David Sedaris book. Um, James Clapper's book has been selling really well for us. God Save Texas by Lawrence Wright has been selling, just continues to sell, to sell and sell. A book that we that we're that's starting to pick up in sales for us is this new book uh, called Mem by the independent publisher Unnamed Press, which which full disclosure also published my book, but it's a really fantastic new book. This kind of Art Deco sci-fi novel that that that's starting to pick up, and I really want to kind of push that one in the next few weeks. So those have been some of the those have been some of the the kind of big ones that we focused on lately. What are you reading at the moment? 
I am reading, um, I'm reading Errol Morris's book, The Ashtray, because I'm a big fan of his movies and I've enjoyed his other books. Um, he, he, he has an interesting way of piecing together different kind of disparate fragments of the world that I find pretty fascinating. Even if I don't always agree with where he's going with it, I find his process to be really interesting as a writer and a filmmaker. Um, I'm also reading a book called The Reckonings by a writer named Lacey Johnson, who, who actually lives in Houston, is a good friend of the store, and it's just a fantastic book so far. And one that I read recently that really just floored me was Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday, which I know has already gotten a lot of buzz, and I'm suspicious of those books that get a lot of a certain kind of buzz sometimes, but um, but I, I thought it was just such, an, such a beautiful and intuitive piece of work. I was just really, like, I still kind of can't get it out of my mind. Hmm. How do you decide what to read? What are some of your filters? Oh, there's no, there's, there's no, uh, there's no pattern whatsoever. It's just, it's chaos. There's no method. It's utter cha- no, it's utter chaos. <laughs> As it should be, I guess. Um, I, are, I, I feel like, I feel like every time I try to structure it in some way, I like something comes up that totally, uh, you know, upends that structure. So I've kind of given up. It's just like whatever book is closest sometimes is whatever's easiest to reach. Yeah. Maybe, I, is, maybe is my method for deciding. <laughs> I've, the, the closest I've ever come is I've tried to do like one, one week or one month fiction and then, and then alternate between fiction and nonfiction, but it, it just ends up being a total mess. So I'm actually, I asked that question selfishly to try to figure <laughs> out some sort of golden key solution. Well, I think one of the secrets that we don't always talk about publicly about, you know, the bookstore life is that you read 50 pages of a lot of things. Right. Right. And you, and you finish fewer and fewer things. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, because oftentimes you're just trying to get a sense of a book. Yeah, that's a and, good point. And even, and you know, you, you love what you've read, and in any other circumstance, you would sit there and continue to read it, but then there's 20 other books that are sitting there that you also need to get a sense of. So, so I think that's one of the dirty little secrets we don't always talk about. No, it's, it's very true, yeah. and I, I feel like it totally should be talked about more often. Like, if something has to be really, really incredible for someone to crush through it, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and there's very few of those. Um, are there any writers or publishers you'd like to mention that you think should be getting more attention right now than, than, Oh man. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to mention one just because, and there, there is, there is a huge, there's a, there is a huge amount, um, just amazing, interesting work happening in small, in, with, with indie publishers right now. I mean, anyone can see that. Everybody knows that, right? I mean, from the established ones in New Directions or Europa to, you know, relatively newer ones like Open Letter or, you know, or Unnamed Press. There's just an incredible amount of stuff happening. And it would and it would be almost impossible for me to I would feel like I was just kind of always leaving people out if I kept trying to name them, you know. Right. But I but I wanna just say about one press in particular, this press called Transit Books, that published their first uh their first two books last year, I think, and they've done maybe three or four more since then. And I know nothing about them. I don't know who runs it. I don't know where they're based, but the books are extraordinary. And they came out of the gate with a defined aesthetic and doing just interesting work. One of those books, uh, Such Small Hands by Andreas Barba, has just become this huge store favorite. And we just keep selling and selling that book. And it's this little weird, like kind of uh, eerie, eerie fairy tale about, you know, 
bunch of girls in an orphanage and uh and it becomes very creepy and it's not exactly a crowd pleaser but but my god if it isn't just extraordinary and just the work that that press is doing i, I it floors me mm. what's it called again transit books transit books uh do you play music in the store yes what's <laughs> what's on the store soundtrack on any given day <laughs> oh man uh it depends on who opens we don't have any real set rules for the music in the store um but you know, I, I, it's a, it can, it can move. You know, we have a, we have, we have a Pandora business station that we use. So generally, the the um, seed point for that uh, Pandora business station can be anything ranging from a, you know, I don't know, like Code Vile or Beach House or Vampire Weekend or some kind of indie thing like that to um, Shakira. <laughs> or, um, That's a quite a spectrum. Kind of, <laughs> it's a spectrum. Some some days we some days we put on a the the Alanis Morissette or the Cranberry Station, and I feel like I'm in like a uh, I feel like I'm in like a mall in the in 1998. 1990s, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, so uh, so and the customers kind of kind of raise their eyebrows a little bit, and then we have fun belt, belting out you know Natalie and Bruglia songs as a staff, and there's no one in there. So the music is a good way to have the music is a good way to have fun and uh, sure. And, and remember that, that, you know, yes, we all take it very seriously, but it's not, you know, we're not doing surgery in there. Um, what book have you recommended the most to people over the years? Um, <laughs> what book have I recommended the most? I feel like I have increasingly been recommending and forcing upon people Dave Collins' book, Columbine which is not the cheeriest of reads, but I think it is just an absolutely essential piece of journalism and reportage. And especially since we are living through kind of nightmare after nightmare in this country regarding, you know, violence and gun violence in particular. um, I think that the way that, that Dave Cullen is able to parse out that experience and parse out the various facets of what went into not only um, the Columbine shooting itself, but then also went into all of the mythologizing around it afterward. Um, And by that, I mean just sort of the way that the media took it up and ran with it, the way that different special interest groups picked picked it up and ran with it. I think it's just absolutely vital for understanding how, how narratives form around violence. And it's not like a didactic book that's saying like, well, here's how we should prevent it or anything, but it's a piece of reportage where he's just sort of saying, look, this is what happened and this is how it was treated afterward. Mm. And, and, um, and it's written with the compassion and the scope of a great novel. So that might seem like a weird book to say that I recommend a lot, but it's sadly on my mind. Um, a lot of the time, whenever I turn on the news and I go, oh, geez, okay, well, here we go again. Rightfully so. Uh, Complete the sentence for me. Houston is? Gigantic. Anything anything you want in Houston, you can find. That's what I love about it. It's it's, the best thing about big cities. Yeah, it's a gigantic city, but it's also simultaneously an unassuming city. And and, um, and that's what I love about it. It's still a bit of a hidden gem. and, And I think it's a great city. Finally, what's your favorite meal? What's my favorite meal? Uh, I'll eat Indian food anytime. I should say something healthier, like a arugula salad. But but uh, go with your gut. You know, I'll, I'll 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 eat macaroni and cheese off of any menu I find. So, 
Ben, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It was great. And, uh, and I'll, I'll look, forward to, look forward to hearing it. For sure. Take care. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.